We shall, in the future, re-enter our study into Colossians. I was able, for the first time in six weeks, to get up to my study today since surgery. I didn't spend a whole lot of time there, but uh, I was able to get up the steps, and Carolyn, of course, was there, my guard, watching me, making sure everything was okay. But uh, hopefully pretty soon I'll be able to go up the steps, I'll be able to get in my study, I'll be able to uh, engage in uh, all of the materials that I have and can use. And uh, I've been for a while and will for a while longer depend upon the reserve that I have. And uh, it, I hope it's more than reserve, it's reality, indeed. And so I want to turn you to Second Timothy chapter 3 this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, we'll read verses 1 through 5. This second epistle to Timothy was Paul's last written epistle. Of course, we know in the fourth chapter, he's ready. He's ready, he says, to be offered. He's ready and uh, looking forward to being with his Lord. He's fought the fight. He's kept the faith. He's, he's finished his course. And uh, so uh, he rejoices in the great truth that there's laid up a crown of righteousness. And if, he, if he understood that and comprehended that, uh, he, do, he says that for our sakes as well. And it is indeed wondrous. But in this epistle, he gives some warnings to Timothy and through Timothy to those who will also be reading and hearing this epistle. So the apostle writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the first five verses, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. And the great key to what the apostle is writing is found in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Well, in a passage like this, there have been multitudes of fanciful things brought forth. Uh, the words perilous times, for instance, will be picked up. And uh, all kinds of great world calamities will be spoken of. And uh, national calamities that are taking place in the earth and last days, those words will be picked up as well. But it won't be applied as biblically that is applied in Scripture. It will be applied to a few years before the end of the age in which we live. And so, uh, but when the Scriptures are studied contextually, when we see what the Apostle is doing and uh, the vein in which he is writing, and this whole epistle, for instance, and what shall follow what he writes here, we'll find out that he's not talking about great worldly events and calamities. 
He's not bringing forth those things that will lend imagination to men and uh, uh, can be used to appeal to those who are engaged in and love fanciful things and great things that uh, are coming on the earth as they believe. They will claim prophecy has its world events that it centers in. And that the little nation of Israel in Palestine is really the center of prophecy. But the scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches something altogether different. And when the nature of prophecy in scripture, the nature of it is understood, it makes quite a difference. True prophecy doesn't center in any nation. It does not center in world events. True biblical prophecy centers in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great thrust of prophecy is the salvation that's to come through him. That's intimated in the first prophecy that the living God himself spoke to the serpent after the fall of man. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then you follow prophecy throughout Scripture, and you'll find it centers in the promise of one who's coming, one who shall save his people from their sins, one who shall bring men who are estranged from God into reconciliation with him and that he will do so through the wondrousness of his own redemption becoming the sacrifice for sin bearing the sins of many bringing them to God salvation in Christ is the great theme of biblical prophecy and that's why you have for instance Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. All prophecy has its root spring from there. Exactly as Peter wrote. And all who are saved by God's grace now and who shall be saved are already in God's kingdom. The kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of God has come. Not an earthly kingdom. Not the kingdom that was looked for by the scribes and the Pharisees in the Lord's day. They asked him when the kingdom of God should come. He said, it doesn't come with observation. You don't see it by physical sight. It doesn't have the boundaries like kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. It's an eternal reality. And when Christ comes in finality, there will be a consummation of that kingdom that will come into great manifestation and glory. But we who are in Christ are already in that kingdom. We're already under the sovereign rule of the king himself. Perilous times, though, do come. 
And they do come in the last days. But if we take a more thorough look at the context in which this passage is located, as well as the language of the passage itself, I think it will reveal a different and far more presently applied instruction than is used by fanciful prophetism to catch the interest of men. So the apostle tells us we're to know for sure that perilous times will come. And these perilous times come in the last days. As he says in verse 1, there's no also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Well, wouldn't it be well to study and consider how in the New Testament this term last days is used? I think it would be. The common New Testament use in its identification of, as it speaks of, quote, the last days, and uh, as it also speaks of, quote, the last time, and the last times, it speaks of the end of the world. This is not speaking of what's going to happen at the end of this age, this gospel age. It's speaking of the whole of this age. It's speaking of the whole of it from the time of the coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ to his second coming. It spans that whole period of time. The last days comprehensively involve God's final purpose. the coming of Christ and divine incarnation and all that God before determined to be accomplished through his cross by his redemption. And with all power now in his hands, who now presently reigns as the God-man. So the book of Hebrews opens with God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. You see, the scripture divides time before the coming of Christ and the last days as the period after the coming of Christ. The final period of world history when God is bringing to pass what he purposed from eternity and shall bring to consummation. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest for you in these last times, these last days. God's final and eternal purpose is now being accomplished. Now in this period, from the first to the second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully accomplished in these last days. These last days are called the fullness of time. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
In this time, God is gathering all things together unto Christ, according to Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. And, of course, the Apostle Paul makes clear that this is the period when God is calling Gentiles as well as the elect from among the Jewish nation. He's calling from all nations, Jew, Gentile, that he has sent his son to save and shall be saved by God's grace. So you see, God's purpose is one of salvation. Salvation. If you were to study a seminary class, that would be termed soteriology, <laughs> salvation. And it does not then bring everything to world events and end-time events. That would be called eschatology. And so stated prophetically to Christ and confirmed through the Apostle Paul. What is God's purpose? Isaiah 49. And uh, <clears throat> we'll, verse, we'll look at verses 6 and verses 8. Isaiah chapter 49. Verse 6, and by the way, prophetically, the Father is speaking to the Son, prophetically here. Remember, Peter said uh, uh, that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, you remember? In the Old Testament prophets. So in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we must view this as the Father speaking to the Son, and... Uh, some seven centuries before the coming of Christ or the incarnation of Christ. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And in verse 8, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. And of course, unfolded in the New Testament, this is the day of salvation. This whole period of time, a special day of grace, from the coming of Christ the first time to the coming of Christ the second time. This is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation in that very special sense. And the Apostle Paul, of course, in his epistles, uh, makes known to us clearly as God by the Holy Spirit taught him that this is when God has removed all distinction between Jew and Gentile. No difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as Paul writes in Romans. And uh, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him, as in uh, Romans chapter 10. And as in Ephesians, Paul goes to great length to show that Jew and Gentile have become one in Christ. Not only so, this is God's final purpose, not some reconstituted Israel in the, New in the land of Palestine. But this great salvation and this thing that we call, and the scripture calls, the church, the redeemed the regenerate of all nations 
comprising the one body of Christ forever. And it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, when Paul concludes teaching a massive chapter on that very thing, he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. You see, put that in the final purpose of God. We who now live in this gospel age, who are in a gospel kingdom, we live in the last time. We live in the very last time, in the final period of world history. You remember John writing in 1 John 2, warns us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then... Uh, he goes on to tell us that the world is going to pass away and the lust thereof. This world is temporary. This world in its state is temporary. One day there will come a great, wondrous regeneration, even of the creation, in God's final purpose. But this present world is passing. It's passing. And then he immediately says in 1 John 2:18, little children, it is the last time. He said that when he wrote the epistle. The last day will come. At the end of these last days. The last day will come. When every Jew and every Gentile in God's eternal purpose shall have been saved by his grace. And shall have been placed into the only eternal body. The church and raised in resurrection glory to be forever with the Lord. The Lord speaks of that several times over in John chapter 6. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the day of resurrection. That's the day of the consummate appearing of Christ. That's the day when the judgment of the world will come. But we now are in the last days. It's in these last days that there will be times varying of great difficulty and peril. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. If we hold as we should, first and primarily to the context in which this is written, we should see that Paul is applying what he is here teaching not to the world in general. He's applying it to professing Christianity. These moral failings, inordinate self-love that always lends itself to the love of money and things. The haughty self-exaltations and pride-filled evil speakings. The rebellion against authority, even children against parents. The brutalities and self-indulgences. The easy breaking of one's own word. 
etc. These things are found in the unregenerate uh, world in all ways and at all times. You learn that if you read Romans chapter 1. The world of old was characterized by these great moral failings. But the particular class of people to which the Apostle Paul makes application are those he describes in verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Religious but lost. Professing to know God but denying him in one's life and works. These are those who do not abandon the forms of religion. They're still religious. But deny the only way to true godliness. They do not subscribe to. They do not manifest a true godliness. They have thus no ability to perform any act of true godliness. None. It's a solemn thing that Paul writes in Titus 1 verse 15. Under the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. Isn't that an amazing statement? Even if they do things right it's still impure. Solemn isn't it? These are those, some of which at one time may have acknowledged even the truth of the gospel. But in time they turn from it. And they revert to that which they were all along. They never were regenerate. They still have a sin-controlled nature. So in the first epistle to Timothy, verse chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall uh, turn from the faith. How does it go? In First Timothy, First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three. Uh, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. They had a, a, a mystical type of religion. But at one time, they had embraced or claimed to have embraced the gospel, the faith. When uh, you have that definite article with faith in the New Testament, the faith, that's not always talking about personal faith. That's talking about the truth, the body of truth that's in the gospel. So these at one time, uh, they embraced it and claimed and professed to believe it, but then departed from it. And so <clears throat> it's like Peter, really, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. He speaks of those who have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, they've had a certain knowledge that has moved them for a while to put off maybe some gross immoralities or things they were engaged in. But they turn back. The sow turned to its, its, its uh, wallowing in the mire. The dog again to its vomit. What does that tell us? That tells us they never were regenerate. They never did have a new nature that was in Christ. 
they remained natural. They revert back to that which controls them. But the particular class of people to which the Apostle Paul makes application are those described in verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They don't abandon outward religion. They don't abandon things that are external. They deny the only way to true godliness. And so, <clears throat> they haven't the source of the power of true godliness. And that's something we need to consider. Where is that then? Where's the source of true godliness? It's from one source. In Scripture, true godliness proceeds from one source and none other. It's the same source through which all spiritual blessing comes. It always and only springs from Christ. By the Spirit that flows from Christ crucified. By the grace of God that proceeds forth from redemption. By the work of God's grace that comes by the Holy Spirit and giving newness of life and a whole new disposition to walk in that life in a different way from the world, in a different way than what they were before they were brought to Christ. The same source of life, Christ, crucified. the same source from which eternal life is derived. It's the same source of godliness. For instance, look in 2 Peter chapter 2, or chapter 1, pardon me, 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, <clears throat> in verses 1 through 3 of Peter's second epistle, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, all from the same source, through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue. It all comes through Christ. There's never one source for life and another for godliness. All comes through him. It all comes together. It all comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who deny this power of godliness, they'll always be lovers of self. They'll always be lovers of money and things. The world will always have their heart. The pleasures of it. They'll love the entertainments of it. They'll love all kinds of things in the world. That'll take their heart. 
more than lovers of God. So then if we know this power of godliness, and let us know that we should ever be yearning for and seeking for an ever-deepening relation with our Lord, to walk closer to Him, closer and closer, day by day, with our effort to commune with Him, to walk with the living God, to engage in that spiritual prayer that brings us into this wondrous reality of walking with our Lord, of finding His Word to be that which thrills our heart, like Jeremiah, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I'm called by Thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The Word of God becomes the sweet, blessed truth that we desire, the riches we want, the honey that causes such sweetness in the soul, the gold that enriches us above everything else, the Word of God. What a treasure God gives to his people. As the Lord Jesus prayed in John 17, I have given them thy word. What a gift. <laughs> He's our gift, and he gives us the word of God. What greater gifts could we have? Anything in this world greater than that? No, absolutely impossible. So if we're going to know the power of godliness, it's going to have to be in knowing him, seeking him, desiring him, walking with him, communing with him, desiring him above all. Obeying him, fanning the flame of love to him. This is where true godliness proceeds from. Not departing from our first love. <laughs> what horrendous sin is that? always mindful that he has redeemed us he bore our sins in his own body on the tree he took all of the wrath of God and suffered everything that we should have suffered for eternity loving us giving himself for us redeeming us how could we allow anything to come before him <laughs> and yet the apostates do if they thought they had anything the world will grab the heart the things of this world will take it and in the end, it seems indeed few there be that find it. It's a solemn thing. But the only way we walk in godliness is by knowing our blessed Savior, loving him, seeking him, seeking his word, desiring to be a light in this world for his glory and his honor. Who says abide in me and I and you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine no more can ye except ye abide in me I am the vine ye are the branches he that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit for without me ye can do nothing and certainly bringing forth no true fruit to the glory of God out of a godliness that walks and knows the living God so you see then these perilous and dangerous times are not simply times of physical danger from the world, from a depraved world, but they're times of great spiritual danger, not body danger, soul danger. And that's a solemn thing, danger that comes even 
when we see this happening and, and we see it happening in others that profess to know him, it has an effect. It has sometimes a great influence. And we have to take the warnings of Scripture. These perilous times will come. What are we to do? What are we to do when these spiritually perilous times come? What do we do when dark days are upon us spiritually? When the temptation is to throw up our hands through the trials and difficulties and the things we see, and we see others that seem to be prospering in the world. What do we do? First, we're to know that this is not a strange thing. We're to be forewarned, which is to be forearmed, that this could happen in our time. Palace times shall come. Paul was not giving some prophecy to Timothy. He was not telling of some event to happen way beyond his time. He's talking to him about what would happen in his own days as well, in his own time as well. The denial of the gospel, the denial of that which God revealed and made known in his gospel was being denied even in that day. Matter of fact, it was a great warfare. And by the time Paul wrote this final epistle and this epistle to Timothy, it had grown. The gospel was being denied, modified. And the responsibility is to shun those who deny or distort the gospel while holding firm to the truth of God's purpose, which can never fail. So Paul had warned already in the second chapter in verses 16 through 19 but shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness not godliness ungodliness and their word will eat as doth the canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus who concerning the truth have erred saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some so you see this warning that comes here. And yet Paul says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Well, it's for sure we're to keep in mind something. No matter what takes place, no matter how things appear, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even when there are those opposing the truth, even Timothy opposing what you believe and what you preach, doing so deceptively and without your knowledge, don't you budge. Don't you budge from your own course and your own responsibility. You see, in all of this that Paul is teaching in this chapter, He's telling Timothy these things are going to come. What's his responsibility? Timothy's, what's our responsibility? 
when things are distorted, when we live in a day when entertainments are that which draws people to so-called churches, when we live in a day when uh, man is puffed up in his so-called self-esteem and made to think himself something so that the drawn into false gospels, lulled to sleep, made to feel good until they perish. It's a solemn thing. What about Timothy? What about you and me? In this chapter, verses 6 through 8, for instance, the apostle says, For this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. So you have these false teachers, and you have these who are out for their own lust and their own glory, and to, to gather disciples unto themselves for their own honor. Yet they're distorting the truth. They're leading others astray, those who never come to the knowledge of the truth. So what do you do, Timothy? What do we do? Second Timothy 3, verses 13 through 15. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, Timothy, you stay in God's truth. You hold to his word. And uh, as you do, as you make personal use constantly of the word of God, you have a basis to know what's false. It will appear. What holds good for preacher there holds good for people as well. Then though the times may bring change, and the time may come when you might wonder, is there anyone who will hear anymore? Don't you change. Don't change. Don't adopt the methods of religion. Don't go to elaborate outward ceremonies that wow men. They have a mystical, demonic power behind them. The forms that charm people. Let your form be simple. Your substance graced. Great the preaching of Christ. The preaching of the Word of God. The preaching to sinners that they need a Savior. The method never changes. Oh, men change it. Men get tired of it. Men don't like to endure it. 
called sound doctrine. And the way it comes is in the fourth chapter. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. This is the responsibility. This is what God has made central in his churches. Not self-help <laughs> talks. Not entertainments. Not great choirs that people listen to and feel so good about. This is what God ordained. The preaching of his word. The proclaiming of his truth. It never changes. But it requires something to continue under and endure sound doctrine. To begin with, it has to be a heart for the Lord and a heart for his truth. It requires an overcoming perseverance. It overcomes the fleshly desires for ease and outward pomp, and ceremony and religious entertainment, even an inward knowing of God in Christ in truth and the spiritual discipline to give an earnest hearing to the word of God, to the truth of God. Always cry for the mercy and goodness of God to move you forward to Christ and your love and consecration to him and a willingness to deny yourself while delighting in him, in the Lord. And you'll have an antidote to error that charms men and deceives them. The Apostle Peter concludes his epistle in 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. You learn of that through his word. You learn of that through spiritual prayer, constant prayer. You learn of that through the ministry of the word where his, his truth is expounded and proclaimed and given forth. Now, there's one more thing here of great importance. If there were not times of great difficulty, if there were not times that tend to even great discouragement, there wouldn't be need for these great admonitions and the great promises that we have in Scripture. There's a great promise, one that we should lay hold of no matter how we feel, no matter how struggling we are with the difficulties we face and the things we dread maybe coming in this world or to us. I didn't know of a greater promise. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Not at any time. I don't know what we could embrace with more blessedness and moving us to be faithful to our Lord and his ways. Then nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing present, nothing to come, not life, not death, nor anything else. 
nor any other creature, but ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not our own uh, difficulties, not our own battles within ourselves. Doesn't change his truth. And so you see, in the perilous times that come, and they come in this world, spiritually perilous, continue thou. Simply continue in what you've learned, what you know to be true. Love the word of God above silver and gold. Find it sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Seek communion with the Lord in prayer. One of the things that I think grieved me the most, I knew the Lord was with me when I had surgery. I think it's the first major surgery I've had, you know. And, uh, but I couldn't get out of the bed, and I, I couldn't get to my prayer closet. I, I did pray while I was in bed. But those times, they're just shutting out the world, just spending that, one songwriter calls it, a sweet hour of prayer. There are very few people understand anything about a sweet hour of prayer, I fear, in our day. Walking with the Lord, communing with Him, getting in His Word, bringing it before Him, praising and thanking Him for His glorious truth and the promises He's granted And finding grace for every single day. Well, I do. <laughs> when I seek his face. May the Lord bless the ministry of his holy word.